Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today, we're going to be asking the question, is Western civilization on the brink of disaster? Yeah, today we're joined by Mark Barnes, the editor of New Polity, and we're going to look at all the societal influences and things going on that leads us to believe that it may be. And in the words of St. John Paul II, as the family goes, so goes the nation and the world in which we live. I think that's a, a perspective that I'd like to begin with in talking about how important the family is to society. guys uh looking forward to this episode mark uh been a, a fan of yours for a long time through the blog bad catholic now you're an editor at new polity mm-hmm. we're talking a little bit about that some really uh interesting and intellectual articles about this this type of uh topic but uh yeah really excited to get the show started um yeah, Mark, I've got to say thank you for your your contributions, my brother. It is very important to hear the voices of very faithful men and women in the church. And clearly your voice is very faithful and you have a very strong contribution to the conversation that we need to have, especially today. So we hope that those who are connecting with us via YouTube, that you're taking the time out of your day to make sure you click the button subscribe. And we want to give a big shout out to all of our patrons, especially those who support the show financially. We would not be able to do the show without you. If you are considering becoming a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash the Catholic talk show. And there you'll see every way that you could support us to ensure shows just like this and conversations like this continue far into the future. Uh, Thanks for that. just, Just one quick note on the Patreon. We're doing hangouts with the Patreons every Wednesday at 11 o'clock. So uh, if you want, you can download the Patreon app there. You'll get the link to join us in the Hangout live, and then we'll record it and post it on that same Patreon app. So uh, just another uh, thing that we're providing now for the, the new patrons and patrons of old. So Awesome. All right. Thanks, guys. So let's talk about this. You know, is Western society on the verge of collapse? And what do we mean by Western society? You know, really, the, I guess the cultural patrimony of, of Europe, right? United States and Latin America and, you know, Europe. But there's been a real shift in what cult, culture and society views as valuable in our world. And it's moving at a very rapid pace to where I think a lot of people look around at what's going on and they don't recognize the place they were born. They don't recognize their neighborhoods. They don't recognize their culture. They don't recognize the values that were instilled in them being valued anymore. So there's, there's a real sense of dis-ease among people who hold to, I guess, more traditional Western values. And we're asking the question today, is that worldview that Western society was built on in the Judeo-Christian um, line of thinking uh, as a patrimony of the great empires of like Rome, and France and England, is that going away? And is that being replaced by something of a lesser quality? So that's why we brought on Mark. So Mark, why don't you get us started and and tell us what are some of your thoughts and your observations about what you see going on in society? Really throwing me the broad, the broad ball to hit. That's it. It (laughs) Well, look, I mean, no, of course, of course there is decline. The difficulty is 
in asking what's declining and whether it's bad or not. You know what I mean? Like whenever you try to take something as vast as culture and say like, are we at a moment of its decline? You have to ask, was it ever worse? In what ways was it worse? was it ever better in what ways it was better? So, um, I, I think it is a very nuanced question. Um, but generally speaking, it seems to me like what we mean when we say things like culture and society are those things that we enjoy, the things that we're really living for. Right. So like, you don't really speak of, oh, the joys of Western society by which you mean all the times that I brushed my teeth and checked my bank account to see if I still had any, any money to continue living in this world. I mean, those are real moments that happen within Western society. Sure. But we want to kind of draw back and say, Hey, that's something different than the kind of thick, warm language we have when we say our society, our culture. Right. So it seems like what we're talking about are those moments that we enjoy for their own sake. Right. So like the festival, the family, the things that we don't do for the sake of some other end, right? Like I'm just working this job so I can, you know, support my family or something like that. Um, and I do see a decline in those moments of contentment, those moments of, uh, enjoyment, those moments in which things are valued for their own sake. And this is something the popes have spoken of a lot that, um, in a increasingly materialist and consumerist culture, the trouble with it is, is that you're enjoying things for the sake of other things, right? You're constantly work becomes something that you do for the sake of acquisition. Um, family becomes something that you go through for the sake of becoming a independent individual with your own job. You leave home you go to college, you do your own thing. Um, even things like festival, are opportunities for making money. Christmas becomes commercialized. Feasts become commercialized or stop to stop existing. It's this kind of general trend in which things that should be valued for their own sake become instrumentalized. And then we're not really left with anything. We're just left with um, a lot of means without really enjoyable ends. I'd, yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to follow up and, and ask you a question, Mark. Um, what you're sharing reminds me of a book that I read in undergrad at Ave Maria University. And Joseph Piefer wrote a book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Yeah. And I, I love what you were talking about in respect to the occupation of one's, uh, you know, experience and, and really, you know, you can use your, you know, work as, as an escape, you could use all these other types of things. And, and even how you approach your family, it's, it's like operational mechanical. One of the quotes that I love from Joseph Pieper, leisure is only possible when we are at one with ourselves, we tend to overwork as a means of self escape as a way of trying to justify our existence. And it sounds like you're talking about something much deeper in respect to how we can approach our lives and, and how that is like kind of attached to the fabric of society. Um, could you kind of elaborate a little bit more? On, yeah, I mean, well, I, I got like a, a I, I have like an experiential thing I can throw in here that I think would, would kind of bring light to this, especially since you mentioned like in the United States consumerism and 
just why people want to have babies or don't want to have babies. And I mean, it is, it is kind of evolved around a self-interest, right? On how they perceive. So the oneness isn't there, but it's their perception met with their actions within that instrumentalization that you were talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that comes to mind is I, I love going to, I don't know if you want to call it a third world country, but Guatemala, I went to Guatemala, I've been to Mexico a lot. And there's a lot of poverty there, right? And and within that poverty, like nobody's upset. They don't have a nice jacket. Everybody's got a smile on their face, right? This is not, even in this poverty, you can see this level of joy and contentment that's authentic. And it to me, it rubbed off on me because of the type of person I am. I'm like, this is beautiful. Like they, just sitting on a porch in the afternoon, talking to your neighbor, you don't have you have enough to get by for the day, but you're joyful. Right. And, and the joy is real. And so then you come back and you're like, well, man, I look at all the stuff we, I mean, I got seven kids, you know, I purge my house. I they bring trucks up, you know? So, you know, you look at this and, and, and I think somewhat of what you were saying with Peeper and what you're saying in the fabric is this instrumentalization that we, that we have done in Western culture of trying to find that happiness and the dissonance between the head and the heart. Right. Yeah. And Ryan, I think the, um, the question really comes down to the question of God, because if it is the case that human beings are destined to rest in God, right? Like that there's an end goal and that end goal isn't for the sake of something else, right? You don't say, okay, we're all destined for heaven so that once we're in heaven, we can build a really big tower or something like that. Of course not. Yeah. Right. It is an actual moment of rest. That's the orientation of life itself is to say, we're done. We're just enjoying each other. And yeah, and the Lord who made us all. Yeah. Awesome. But that's a fundamental orientation, right? That's not something that you just say, okay, the rest comes in heaven. And then there's, you know, work to be done here. Material. No, it's actually something that pervades the entirety of human life. So when a culture has its eyes set on God, right, then moments of, rest become glimpses of heaven yeah. so the real stuff of life of culture of society becomes those moments where you're not doing something for the sake of something else but those moments where you experience right the kind of community we'll have in heaven and so then life i mean it, it sounds silly right it sounds like it sounds like a pipe dream but life really does become about the festival life really does like why are we here why do we exist well we exist to actually enjoy this stuff like when you say the festival, you mean the yeah. festivity of the, the the person with those around them? And yeah, I'm using it in kind of like a maybe a, a more um, academic way than I should. By festival, I just mean any moment of contentment for its own sake. Gotcha. Why why do we get together to party? The party isn't for something, right? Right. The party is the thing that we do things for, and then right. you have to party, right? Um, like a wedding. A wedding is not for the sake of something else. I mean, obviously it's for the sake of getting married, but the celebration itself is to say, this is good. It is yeah. good that these people are in love. It is good that we all love each other. It is good that we're a community. And so when we talk about this broad, like is Western society on decline? I think it's actually important to have a kind of broad answer, right? Mm -hmm. Which is if what we mean by culture and society, um, if what we mean is a festival, is the moments in which things are done for their own sake, as opposed to merely instrumentalized, then a society that doesn't have its eyes fixed on God, uh, on a heavenly festival as its ultimate orientation, 
is going to dismiss and deny the beauty and goodness of festival on the way. If that makes gotcha. sense. It does. And I think what a good example is like a wedding, as you said, the wedding celebration so often, and Father Rich, I'm sure you see this in all the wedding preparation that you do with your parishioners, but oftentimes it's not a celebration of the wedding. It now becomes a moment of, instead of focusing on the celebration, it's a, it's a statement. It's a means to an end to make an impression on people. It's not just a pure moment of enjoyment. Same thing with Christmas. It's obligatory. We have to do these things where it's divorced from the concept of actual enjoyment for its own sake. Um, and I think our culture is kind of trending in that direction. And there's a really great quote by Cicero. And I think Cicero, Cicero was around during the decline and the fall of the Roman Republic. And I see so many parallels between the United States in this point in time in history and the pre-imperial Roman Republic as it fell. But he said, the, the problem of society at the time was the evil was not in the bread and circuses per se, but in the willingness of the people to sell their rights as free men for full bellies and the excitement of the games, which would serve to distract them from the other human hungers, which bread and circuses can never appease. Wow. And the concept there is that they're taking these base imitators of the good things of culture and letting them substitute that, um, empty caloric cultural experience for something that's much deeper. And we are very much in my eyes and my experience in that as a society, whether it's children being an accessory, whether it's another check mark that you knock off, like, well, I'm at this age, I should have a child. And here's my kid on Instagram and take a picture and I can go watch your iPad or I'm getting married. And it's not about your love of your husband or your wife. It's about, you know, showing your sisters and your friends what an elaborate wedding you've had. Yeah. Or your car is not about getting to a place. It's about projecting who you are. Your job is not about supporting your family. It's about a place in, in, in a social strata. And there's a lot of danger to that, you know? Yeah. You mentioned distraction or Cicero mentioned distraction. You've mentioned distraction. I think distraction is, you know, the, the, the kind of the antithesis of, what it is that we're talking about with contentment too. I mean, you have the rational concepts of, of what it is that we value and how we're moving into a, a, a distraction of, of those things and not, you know, making the sacrifice to go within them and then just be present in them and being content. Well, um, but I think the problem with just being present is that it doesn't make anybody any money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't. Like it so, can't be monetized. It <laughs> can't be. Yeah. Hey, we're doing it right now. <laughs> we're getting we're getting to the point where you know, when we talk about social collapse, um, it's not simply a matter of kind of interior psychological um, change, although that's obviously happening to people. Um, it's also a deliberate effort, right? Like the reason that it's useful to instrumentalize moments of what would be rest and enjoyment and, and the, the kind of Instagramming of the child, which is like maybe yeah. a perennial example of this. Sure. That those moments are profitable once instrumentalized. Mm -hmm. Right. So Christmas is a great example of this, right? 
like it is if your orientation is to make money, then the fact that Christmas exists is like a goose that lays a golden egg. It's like, wait a minute, there's going to be millions of people that all go home, buy food and give each other presents. And we know where they're going to be and that they, ha- and they have to shop for this. It's like, of course it became commercialized. If the end of the society is, is making money. So my point is like, it's not merely that society loses its sight of God and so loses, you know, these moments of rest, right? That does happen. But it's also the case that a society that takes as its telos, its, its purpose um, to be uh, the accumulation of profit, that, they, that people that believe that, I should say, actively instrumentalize moments of rest. So the child becomes something that you have insofar as it's profitable. And then we're literally using our children to kind of increase our own clout on, on whatever. In a society of unrest, Mark, yeah. like where, what is the trajectory of a society of unrest then? Because if, if everything is being marketed and, and really taken away and instrumentalized for, for profit or gain, yeah. you know, and this growing unrest in society um, continues to increase, like how does that either stop or where is it going? Yeah. The, one of my favorite thinkers, his name is Rene Girard, and he talks about this process as an unleashing of um, what he calls mimetic desire, which means it's like a people that go this route um, thrive on constantly desiring new things and imitating each other in those desires. And that becomes the kind of whole of life. Right. And what it ends in, he says is violence. So, and I think it actually ends in two things. It ends in violence in terms of a people and it ends in um, massive uh, income disparity or wealth disparity uh, within the society. How wow. do you practically get there? I'm trying to follow. Sure. How do you get there? With as far as income disparity, we are there, right? right. Yeah. yeah. So it's more the like <clears throat> when you have when you have mom and pops closing because there is no way they can compete with the instant gratification of Amazon and Walmart and Target. You are basically funneling all the money to a ruling class. You're creating uh, exactly what happened in the Roman times, where um, wealth and land was centralized within one class of society, and everyone else was squashed out. There was no middle class, and yeah, that it's funny. It's kind tends of like- always to violence because yeah. those people who are under the foot of that economic um, cabal will always. Av- history shows revolt against that it's funny because you said mom and pop shops but i was just reading how amazon has started its own uh pharmaceuticals so now you're going to get your your drugs from amazon which has uh interesting implications but it's funny because people were talking about like oh no this is going to close like the rite aids and and the cvs which of course will already be you know, right. doors that a couple of generations ago, people were complaining, were crushing the, the other mm-hmm. um, pharmacies and kind of taking all basically kind of this endless process of moving things up towards smaller and smaller units of ownership, whereas everyone else doesn't own. But you asked how, why unrest leads to that. Like why, why does a um, 
inability to enjoy and an inability to rest naturally lead to violence and accumulation. Um, and it seems like with, with, um, the inability to rest, you basically have, um, no place in which you are not willing. There's no place in which you're willing to stop spending basically. Right. So like when you get, so like, so like, you know, you don't realize that this is happening. And so you continually go to that instant gratification mm-hmm. and you pile it on yeah. and that, and, and you, you can't sort of rest like that cycle change of behavior. Right. Like when are you content? Like when is the car that you have fine? And right. when do you finally learn how to fix your car instead of buy another spending one. money to fix yeah. it or, or buying a new one? Like when do you finally say, I'm going to just own a house and live here forever and not constantly look at myself as someone that needs to engage with a market and have a better deal for myself. Like we don't have strong communities that allow for um, people to stop striving, right? To people to say, this is it. This is my life. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to have these things. I'm going to do this work. I'm going to love these people. Right. Yeah. Like we don't have that sense of the ability to stop which obviously is perfect if your sort of goal is the accumulation of capital into the hands of the wealthy, which is obviously the goal of the wealthy. I mean, that's, they say this, it's not like a secret, like that's what they're in it for profit. And so if you can create a people who always need to spend money to get new houses, new cars, who need to pay to manage their family on a biological level, contraception, abortion, like the actual, influence of money in having families like you can't even rest in that that becomes something where you have to be paying large pharmaceutical companies to essentially make your family for you and with you um you could use anything as an example but my point is what you get is a transfer of ownership and a transfer of wealth up to fewer and fewer people um to the degree that there's less and less areas of contentment where you just say hey i don't need anyone else i don't need to buy anything i'm I'm happy here. I'm happy in this moment. I'm happy with these people. Um, and then as far as violence goes, um, I think that the violence comes because these desires, this inability to rest is fueled by envy. It's not just this sort of, um, individual thing where you sit there and you think like, Oh, what will ever fulfill the gaping hole? That is me. I'm going to consume, 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 consume. That's sort of a romantic idea. But I think sometimes when people hear about consumerism, they can just think of like a very hungry person who can't stop eating or something like that. But I think the more realistic answer is that we're constantly looking at each other and saying that person is happy. I should be like that person. That house is the one that I should have that car is better than mine. I need some other car to show that I'm better than that person. So it's never simply the, um, it's never, we live in a society that manipulates our envy for each other, right? That basically dangles this lie in front of our face that says, Hey, the other person has the missing thing, right? They've really got it right. That famous person, that neighbor, right? That wealthy person, they've got the goods they have real life and all those desires and dissatisfactions you have. Well, it's because you don't have what they have. We go, since we can't become them, right. I can't go be that famous person. I can't go be that neighbor. 
what do we do? Well, we buy what they have, right? Right. This is how the market has worked for a while now. And it's what keeps the economy chugging along is this sort of continuous production of envy. But the thing is, it means that we live in a society in which the engine is a resentment um, to our neighbor. Like if we don't have that, we kind of stop buying things. Yeah. So that's and, why. And, and that envy, that envy leads to hatred of yeah. the other because sure. they have what yeah. you don't have. And that hatred leads to violence. It is a very, very common cycle. If you look at history where yeah. a certain class looks at another class with hatred for having what they don't have, yeah. whether it's the Russian revolution, whether it's the French revolution, whether it's the, um, the, the Romans and, and the, and the Carthaginians wanting their other spices or this trade route. I mean, it is a common thing, but when that cycle gets to a certain point, it's almost unavoidable that the yeah. hatred that a society breeds for each other out of a consumeristic competitive mentality will lead to violence because, mm-hmm. I mean, you'll even see this in, um, you'll see this in apes and orangutans. You'll see territorial, wars and orangutans and gorillas because they have a better place with more natural resources. It's a very, it's a base thing that is being manipulated by, you know, a economic ruling class They're They are manipulating our weakest and most primal instincts against ourselves. And, and I, you know, I think from, from where we're kind of talking, which which is like very high minded philosophy, high minded history, you know, how can we kind of break this down in layman's terms of what are the structures that are involved in society right now that are propagating this unrest? You know, what is what is the the kind of the beast that is involved in in this type of of control of the market? And, you know, I look at I look at social media, for example, you know, and social media in every respect, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, um, even Parler. MySpace, you Parler, know, which, like, which we're on now, Parler, you know, yeah, show. we're on all, we're on all, we're on all of it. You know, <laughs> right. we're on all of those. Please follow us, take a moment and follow us on the, you know, but, but there's never been a medium. I don't think throughout history that has propagated such unrest. And you think about it yourself when you're scrolling through constantly, doesn't it create an unrest in you? Uh, you know, well, and as you- social media is the weaponization of envy. It, it, is, it, is, yeah. it, is, it is, it is the purest irradiated weapons grade envy system ever created. Yeah, and, and then you I- look at the structures, you look at the structures of pornography. Right. And, and what St. John Paul II is like, the, the problem is, is that, you know, it, it shows like not enough, you know, the whole sense of, of intimacy between man and woman and the beauty of that, the beauty of that, you know, in, in the sense of rest and what we're talking about, like entering into that deep place of communion with the other yeah. is, is something in and of itself worthy of investment of mind, heart, body and soul. And, and in those pockets, like, where do we find our rest? You know, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. This is what St. Augustine said. And, you know, God has ordered us in a way to be fruitful and multiply, to be together in the mystery of just existing as being fruitful. Mm-hmm. And in that contemplative way of life, like, man, there's everything is there. <laughs> everything is there. And throughout history, we have men and women 
throughout church history that have chosen poverty, that have chosen simplicity, that have vowed these things, chosen, you know, a way of life of austerity and complete detachment from the world. So, you know, when I look at like, how do we stop this movement and trajectory of unrest? It has to be at a grassroots level mm-hmm. of church teaching in rejecting these powers and, and renouncing them as if they were something in the world that would make me happy or give me rest or give me deep satisfaction. I have to renounce these powers and, and shut them off mm-hmm. and balance them in my life. Yeah, I, I see. I, I don't use Facebook anymore. I mean, I, I get on and post stuff with my kids, but I stopped really like about a year ago because like even the nicest Catholic people or whatever, I mean, it was just, there there was like narcissism within the practicing of their faith, you know? And I'm like, this is just bad. When you, when, when Catholics, right. Cannot recognize that like they're using this selfishly to draw attention to themselves and that this is, this is the antithesis of our, of our faith, right. Drawing attention to myself. Like, come on, the glory goes to God. And it's just, after that, I was just like, man, this is just getting, this is just getting crazy. And it's hard. It's hard for people to be self-aware to see that number one, and hard for you to break that sort of concept in your, in your brain that this is causing you harm, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. The number of conversations I've had with people where a whole room of people are all complaining about their addiction to whether it's their smartphone or, or Twitter or Facebook. And then when you suggest that they don't, Stop. it sort of trails off to some other thing. Like somehow that's, that's impossible, which in fairness, it should be pointed out that we don't live in like a society in which individuals choose unrest, right? We live in a society in which unrest is mandated and in which it becomes increasingly difficult to choose life's a life of simplicity, right? Yeah. Like to the very realistic degree to which it's like going to be impossible not to have a smartphone very soon. Yeah. Like you will not be able to keep a job. That's what I mean. <laughs> so like, mm-hmm. it's not simply the case that it's like, well, we could just like, we need radical structural change. We need to not, I agree father that we need to be at the grassroots level, but with an orientation that recognizes, look, mm-hmm. if we're going to sort of stop a trajectory of unrest, there also has to be a real effort to, both destroy and overtake real um, strongholds of power where people are being actively orientated towards um, envy and dissatisfaction for the sake of profit of, of the few. I, I was laughing when you were talking about social media, Ryan, because the uh, uh, Peter Thiel, um, he's one of the big investors in Facebook. And when he chose to invest in Facebook, it was after he had read um, Rene Girard, the, uh, uh, I was just talking about. And it's, it's funny because, you know, Rene Girard thought that by stoking envy, we create a society in which ultimately, um, there is a violent blood sacrifice. Like that's the end goal of all this envy is, is ultimately someone becomes the sacrificial victim, um, who, is the one that dissipates as it were all the violence that envy builds up. So you got to understand that someone who read that 
said, okay, you know, it's a great idea. You know, it's really going to work Facebook. And, and it's, he was right. Like he was right that it would be addicting, that people would love to be envious, that we would find a place for this kind of magnification of our unrest and our envious desires. And he invested in it and made a lot of money. But I think it's an important point that we shouldn't be naive to think that these things just simply happen. Like these things are the work of human hands. People knew that the sin of the human heart could be a profitable venture and, and went for it. So, yeah. So. You see that with Planned Parenthood, you see that in a lot of, a lot of different, a lot of different things in our society. I mean, I, I, I'm looking at this and I'm like, what, what about the listener that like, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself like Amazon, right? Like I've got seven kids and you know, I'll get on an app and I'll shop because of the convenience. Right. Um, obviously we don't do that all the time. Cause I actually like going to the store to see people that I know that are in my neighborhood that work there and I have conversations with them. So it's not all the time, but what do you say to somebody who's like, do I just stop buying from Amazon? Do I just find local people and just be content with what I'm able to buy here? Or are there certain things that, you know, are okay to buy? Right. I mean, I, I get, I get the social media. I've cut off of that and my life has gotten so much better. We got Exodus 90 men are going through this and they're coming out and it's just renewing a lot of people's hearts, um, you know, because they're, they're getting off social media. But like, what do you say about, you know, the instruments of society that are, you know, uh, a vacuum to the economy that have yeah. become so big that it's very difficult to have communities like we've had in the past? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I say there's no way um, out of this except some sacrifice. Yep. So there's, I can't give you an answer that says, hey, here's how you can have all of the conveniences of a envy economy without, you know without using the envy economy. The whole point is that it is convenient. What I like to do with Amazon is use it as a search engine <laughs> because they very conveniently um, become the middleman for everything. Like that's, yeah. that's their shtick. But then it becomes really easy just to search on Amazon for the thing you want and then go directly to the seller mm -hmm. and just cut out the middleman. I mean, just a simple, like a simple yeah, tag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. doesn't have too much more time. Um, and so that can be, that can be one way to go about it. And yeah, the other, the other thing to be, but the other thing is you gotta be honest, like it's not that we live in a world in which there's like Amazon and other options. We live in a world in which a movement, which has culminated in Amazon has destroyed the other options. Right. So like I live in the downtown here, just to give an example in which if you don't have a car, if you can't drive, you cannot access a grocery store with any kind of ease. We live in what's called a food desert, right? And this is a normal for great swaths of American people, right? That yeah. they live in a place in which something as basic as groceries, right? Relies on access to another expensive commodity, right? Like we, are, we have designed our world for the sake of consumption and with that in mind. Yeah. And so I've got friends who don't have a car because cars are expensive and they're poor and they get most of their food at a gas station. And so of course they're drastically unhealthy, right? Like they're physically, you can't, you, you can't live on a, on a big gulp or whatever it's called. Um, but that's, that's where they're at. They would have to really like hike up an actual hill uh, and 
if you knew the geography of my place, you'd understand like, uh, it's a big ask. And so I think there needs to be a kind of tragic awareness of this so that you don't end up becoming the person that's like, just find moments of rest and ditch moments of consumerism and, and envy. It's like, no, you live in a world in which the simple, normal, easy route, right, is consume from large corporations at great convenience. Like that's what that's the world we made. So We've let's talk. Let, let's talk about a couple things that are maybe symptomatic of that, right? Some of the things that really point towards a loss of what traditionally Western society has valued. That is, you know, has Western society lost its faith in God? How is this damaging the family? How is it that divorce rates goes up so drastically in the last hundred years when, again, wives and husbands become a commodity and something to envy after something, a better wife, a better husband, right? How does um, children, you know, really, how has God and family been so supplanted by the desires of the corporations to buy? How has that become so um, pervasive in culture to where authority is not respected? There's violence and rioting in the streets. There is gender confusion. There is sexual confusion. There is a children are many places are the majority born out of wedlock. How has all of that caused these, I guess, almost mortal death blows to these, these uh, linchpins of what holds a society together. You really ask the easy ones, man. <laughs> Our audience demands it. <laughs> I mean, like, everything, and I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> everything you've mentioned, it's um, it's fascinating how it can all be connected. Um, in that it's not that a consumer society doesn't offer you goods that Western society has always valued, like a family, a marriage, a wedding, children, right? Home, land, things like that. The difference is more subtle. It offers them to you, but now as a item to be purchased amidst a possible array of other items, right? So the weird part about being Catholic in America and maybe just in Western culture right now in general is that you get kind of validated for some of what you do, right? So they're like, oh yeah, sure, have a family. Oh, you have a faith, a Catholic faith? That's, that's awesome. It's so good that you have faith. Like you live in a culture where other people have faiths too and you've chosen this faith and it makes you happy and that's wonderful. What's being done there is the real thing that's important is that we, that we have these things in a manner um, of a consumer society, right? That we're consumer, assuming them as goods for our individual selves, right? Rather than being responsible to them as a people who live in family, who are destined to be fruitful, multiply, who have a vocation, who are orientated towards heaven. These things don't matter anymore. What matters is that subjectively we can gain our subjective happiness by uh, sort of purchasing the different lifestyles that we want. And you mentioned gender, and that's an obvious example of this, right? Like people think, oh, we live in a world in which gender is all crazy and all that. That's eh, maybe, but not really. I mean, most people 
say they're a man, say they're a woman. It's just that now what we've done is said that you become a man or you become a woman, not because it's a gift from God that's essential to the human race, right? But because you've chosen this identity in the same way that this person might choose a gender fluid identity, in the same way that this person might choose a gender queer identity, the same way that this person might be transgender, you're, you're a man. It has become another, another thing to be able to purchase with some clothes, hormones, and some validation. You've just purchased whatever identity you want. Precisely. precisely. And, and I think that, I mean, it's important to, to be honest that this has been going on before, you know, like the nineties in the sense of the idea that masculinity is something that you purchase has been long before the transgender question, something that's been pushed on men, right? Like, that's just how advertising works. If you want to be a real man, you smoke camels sort of thing. Um, Marlboro's, I suppose. <laughs> but that structure hasn't really changed. It's just there's more diverse things to buy to become more diverse things. I mean, we began this discussion um, talking about how what, have, what has to be disrupted is any moment of contentment, any moment of rest, Right. Gender is a great example of that, because if you believe the biblical doctrine, male and female, he created them. Then when I look and I see that I'm male, there's nothing more to do. There's nothing to buy, right? There's nothing to prove. There's nothing to go, you know, I'm going to go perform my maleness by doing X, Y, or Z. Like, I don't need to pay anyone anything. I just got it from God. It's a gift. (laughs) But what we do is those moments of gift are moments in which no one's making any money. And so you take those moments and you say, oh, no, gender, it's not, a, it's not a given. It's not a gift. It's an achievement. It's a performance. It's a thing you do, right? It's a thing that this person does and so becomes trans and this you do and you become a male, you know? And so it's the same with family. It's the same with religion. Um, all of these things are maintained. They're all items we can purchase, but they've been stripped of their foot, not even stripped. They've been, their, their substance has been sucked out of them. Right. It's like, we're allowed our Catholic world so long as it is a consumer choice within a world of other consumer choices. Well, even like a, a wife, it's like, you know, now you can live together. I mean, people live together, uh, you know, um, and it's like, you're, you're trying at trying it out, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's like, you know, when you want to buy something, uh, yeah, sure. I want to try it out for free. I don't want to you know, s- subjugate myself to maybe a bad product, you know? Which has always been shocking to me that people have such confidence in themselves. It's like, well, you're being tried out too, man. <laughs> <laughs> it goes both you ways. Right? Confidence that you're not like a faulty product there. <laughs> yeah, people people are looking at marriages like rent to own, that they can get out of the contract later if it's <clears throat> the property doesn't suit them anymore or they found another property again. Hey, it's that other place that I'd rather be. I'd rather have that one. Let's just swap it out, you know, sign the papers and go get a new lease. And, and actually that's divorce is hugely profitable. I it mean, sure is. Oh yeah. About the, just double the houses. Boom. You got a, You got a whole new housing market. Can you imagine a better game to get tons of money than to split every house into two? Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I don't know. I don't know how a lot of condo uh, developments and uh, apartment developments would live without having divorced individuals. I recently sold a home and it was a smaller starter home. And the only people who came and saw it were people who were divorced because it wasn't a young family looking to get started with two kids. 
you know, like where I was when I bought it, it was, well, the wife's getting another house. The husband's getting this house. This house kind of fits me to have the kids half time now. And, and it, it's, it's really, I mean, the amount of commoditization and monetization of divorce, it's pretty absurd. Uh, whether it's right. apps that tell you to have an affair because you'll be happy and the instant access to no fault divorces, it's, it's shocking, but those types of things have reverberations to their children. Their children then see marriage as disposable. They then see that, um, they see themselves as a bad product. They you do know, that dad and mom, you know, well, and then I think it often becomes more a matter of fear, right? Like it's not, it's not necessarily that the kids are like, cool, I'm going to, I'm going to test out a couple. It, it's more like, wow. Like how, how would I ever say yes to a marriage? Like I'm terrified and I need to, yeah. I need to test this out before I do it because I don't want to end up in the same way. I mean, the church describes the family as the fundamental unit of society. And what it does not mean by that is that it's like the smallest thing that then is built up into society. It's a kind of non-Catholic view. It means it's a microcosm, right? The family has everything you need in it. And I don't mean like just the nuclear family. I mean like the family, um, which includes really friends and neighbors and like people living in that close knit common good that begins though with the mother and the father. Um, that's sufficient for life, for enjoyment. You know, it, it has in itself that taste of Eden, that taste of heaven. Uh, it is maybe the primary experience of the word enough. I have enough. And so of course it's the primary object of attack when it comes to a society that's predicated on the destructions of moments of enough and the introduction of moments of, I need more. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like people often, I think, look at the attacks on the family and they, and they kind of posit some sort of um, like immoral hatred of goodness. Nefarious. Yeah, I think that's there. But I think the more obvious thing is that the family, once broken, becomes profitable. Like that is nefarious. Absolutely. But, but we're not really motivated by like, I mean, evil is an absence, right? We're not really motivated by destruction itself. I mean, I mean, even Satan is motivated by his own pride at least. Right. But we are motivated by lesser goods. And we live in a society in which the lesser good of profit has been elevated over the greater good of rest. And so the family as the kind of original source of rest in the world, that place where you can really sit back and say, Hey, we're all here and it's good. <laughs> yeah. Says, no, no, no. We got to split that up. We got to, we got to start buying and selling again. <laughs> now I'm, I'm even as, seeing it on a, on a local level. Thank you. I I'm even seeing it on a local level as a pastor and as a priest in a new community um, a new development. It's, you know, we're in the third largest growing development in the country right now. Um, you know, our, our rates of family number are, are increasing. Younger families are coming to church. We've got a lot of different, uh, you know, facilities that are being built right now. 
for marketing to divorced families and, and, you know, like leased properties and apartments and, and all of these other types of things. And I'm seeing it and, you know, living the good life or living what, what knockatee people say, the knock life is, is, you know, like the sense of having the, the nicest cart, the nicest, uh, accessories to their, to their husband and wife, you know, with children and dogs and, and, you know, faces rectory, yeah, fancy, <laughs> fancy things, you know, like, and, and all of these accessories that accompany, um, this marketing strategy that I think this show has illuminated the most. And, 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 and I appreciate that. Um, but I am seeing firsthand people recognizing that and seeing how empty it is mm, and yeah. people are coming to church and they're choosing lives of simplicity. Some of these young people are coming to daily mass with their families. Some of them are turning to homeschool models and living more simple lives because mom or dad has to stay home with the kids and educate and embracing that poverty and embracing, you know, these decision points, like what Delacrosse was saying before, brings people a lot of peace and a lot of rest. And, and even with respect to um, what people ask me all the time, like, so when are you going to get a youth director? When are you going to, when are you going to um, get this or get that? Or how are you going to, when are you going to build a church? Um, for me, everything has to be revolving around the family. And for us, you know, I've hired a family life coordinator because we need to facilitate family life at our parish. When families come here, I don't want them to leave after mass. I want them to enter into rest with us after mass, after we receive the community commute, like real community, real community centered around the the church. Yeah. And, And when, and that's why the church is ever going to be an instrument of that unity. The church is ever going to be an instrument of truth. And when we're cracking open this content today, and we're looking at very dense philosophical concepts and political philosophy, and and what these powers are marketing in society and and the commoditization of, of everything that's sacred and good and wholesome, you know, it's time to recognize the church in the midst of the world as that instrument that stabilizes the human family. And the more and more that I do marriage counsel, uh, day in and day out, the days that I, I just spend hours with couples and realize like, now I understand, like the church is absolutely necessary for marriage preparation. Mm-hmm. The evaluation of, of, of the focus test or you know assessment tools for relationships are absolutely paramount developing retreats and, and training these young people that want to enter into the state of marriage so that they can learn practical ways to enter into rest with one another spiritually with spousal prayer is, is everything. And to go full circle as we're coming down to the kind of close of this show to go back to the words of St. John Paul II and express as the family goes, so goes the world in which we live. So goes society as it breaks down. And, and now is the time in our world for us to do our part and to participate in our faith. And there is no church as healthy as people actually getting involved and providing these moments of rest together and you choosing know, that. Society has crumbled many times throughout the, the life cycle of the church in the last 2,000 years. What everyone would view as society, whether it was the fall of Rome, whether it was the French Revolution, whether it was... 
you know, the Holy Roman Empire or Byzantium or whatever. There's been so many societal collapse that looked like the end of the world to people, whether yeah. Black Plague or the Reformation. The church has always been a steadying force. It is the bark, uh, this, the bark of St. Peter in the storm, right? And clinging to it throughout history has been the only constant thing that has offered a contrary worldview and a worldview based in values and based in Christ that has been the bulwark against the societal forces. So clinging to the church in these times, there is nothing else because society does always unravel cyclically, but the church is always there in those voids to provide that fabric, those stitches that keep society knit back together. And I wanted to add one last thing, and this is my probably my favorite quote, maybe of all times, Chesterton, is that the most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man, his ordinary wife, and his ordinary children. And the more you can start to look at your family in its ordinariness as extraordinary because of that nature, the happier you will be. Now, now um, Mark, why don't you tell people a little bit more about where they can uh, find some more of your writings, get some more of your thoughts, and tell them about New Polity. Yeah, I, I want to just say I do think that the church has always been the institution of, of God's Sabbath rest, right? Um, it is the calling back of humanity, right, to the Garden of Eden where God walked with man and where there wasn't until the lie of the serpent envy, right? So even today, I just want to totally affirm that beginning real activities, real festivals, community gatherings, studies, prayers, celebrating feast days, um, doing processions, talking with your priests and actually asking, Hey, how can we have a life that resists our culture, right? How can we do things where, what we're doing is exchanging gifts and not buying and selling. How can we do things where what we're enjoying is each other and not uh, envying each other? How, how can we do things where when we're done, we say that itself was good and not for some other reason, like how good it is to celebrate the feast of St. Matthew, for instance. I think those things might sound trite or, or ineffective, and I think they can't be taken apart from um, really the Catholic conversion of higher powers in a society, which includes at the level of of business and politics, but it's all of that is just irresponsible and silly without, um, an actual effort at restoring, um, Sabbath rest in our churches through the church and through the Holy mass, which is the ultimate event, um, where we simply receive gifts and, and really have so little to offer in terms of, uh, the work of, of human hands. Like we give so little and we get so much. And that's this primordial experience of the gratuity of existence. Um, so I just want to affirm that, yeah, the turn to the church um, is what will weather the storm of any kind of envious psychotic economy as it crashes to the ground. Um, to read more of this sort of thought, this sort of work, um, newpolity.com is where we publish most of our stuff. Um, we just finished issue three of the magazine, New Polity, which is an academic journal, um, where a lot of these ideas are discussed. In fact, I was actually thinking this is appropriate. I have an article in here, um, about sleep in the Bible, um, and, and the meaning of sleep and how sleep in the Bible is sort of an act of worship, 
Um, and it's only in our contemporary society where we consider sleep as a kind of pause button on human existence that gets under- well if sleep is worship Della Cross is the pope let me tell you yes <laughs> i'm so good at napping and sleeping well, this, this article will justify your whole existence we'll never have to, we'll never have to yeah, so, yeah new polity we'll put the link there below so yeah, you can see it on so screen polity polity is just a fancy word for city and so what we're all about is imagining what a new city looks like what does a christian society look like like once you get okay get over all this silliness of envy and, and um, violence uh, and ask, how do you build the kingdom of heaven on earth? Because that's always been the vocation of the laity here uh, in union with the clergy. And so um, it's just another stab at imagining that. And I think there's some stuff that's more heady. There's some stuff that's a little more light, but I really think that um, just plugging into that, following us on that website, newpolity.com, we'll, we'll get at least some of uh, some of this good stuff into you. So Mark, we want to, we want to really thank you so much for the wonderful insights that you provided to this conversation and driving this really incredible movement that you have going on. It reminds me of Aristotle's word. Mankind is ordered toward the polis. You know, we are all ordered to enter into civilization. That, that is something that's naturally inclined in the human person. And we do need renewal. So, you know, please continue to share on our feeds on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And remember, like, even these mediums can provide, like, real conversation. So we hope that this show provides that to you and maybe some thoughtful concepts. Um, You know, again, we want to give a big shout-out to all of our patrons that make this show possible. And if you want to check out more, go to catholictalkshow.com. There you'll be able to see every way that you could listen in or view our content on YouTube. And we thank you so much for joining us today, and we will see you next week. God bless.